Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department, and I'm joined as always by Anne Marie Koistra in the History Department. And this week, instead of having a guest on, we decided it would be fun to, as inspired by our students and their award-winning podcast last December, um, to a to sort of do a bachelor um, with the various strong female characters that we have read throughout the humanities program. Enjoy. Okay, well, today, Carrie, um, we've been inspired by our students, as always. And so um, on our version of, I guess it's Western Humanities meets The Bachelor, except I guess we're The Bachelors. Is that right? right? I guess yeah. so. These are Oh, yes, because these are clearly women we would like to hang out with. Right. Yeah, I think this works. Anyway, listeners, make sense of this. We don't quite know how this is working but we figure men are probably not going to do this version of the show. So we thought we'd go ahead and do it. So Carrie, your job and my job was to sort of figure out which women, as you say, we would want to hang out with. And you decided to take semesters one and maybe two. So um, who, who's your choice from, from that era? Yeah. So this was difficult because there are a lot of pretty amazing women um, I mean, there. I think there are some some obvious choices that I would not want to hang out with, nor would be ideal contestants on. Such as, such as, well, like Agave or any of the mm. the Bacchae. Like they, they're a little bit intense, um, and you don't want to get your head chopped off um, in an ecstatic frenzy. So. But maybe you'd want to be part of the ecstatic frenzy? Possibly, possibly. Okay. And I suppose as a woman, I would probably be protected um, and yeah. maybe part of the ecstatic frenzy. Um, and then Camilla um, is a, gr- I mean, she's obviously a great, great warrior and amazing. Uh, Monica is this sort mm-hmm. of epic woman. Um, but I had to go with Beatrice. Oh. From Dante's Purgatory. Yes, you did. Yeah. Um, and I mean, she rocks. Uh, Dante the Pilgrim was in love with her on earth. Okay. But I love that Beatrice just kind of upbraids him because mm-hmm. he, it, as it turned out, he didn't really love her, not the way people should love each other. He idealized and idolized her. He focused on her earthly beauty as dudes often do. Um, and man, does she chastise him mm-hmm. um, for this. She, in fact, one of my favorite lines in the purgatory is Dante is receiving the wrath of Beatrice and he's so overwhelmed that he faints, um, <laughs> which is just fantastic. Um, and she points out that the reason that he should have loved her was for her inner beauty. And mm-hmm. it, she sort of represents in this way, this sort of platonic notion of beauty that Plato puts forward in the symposium. So Plato in the symposium argues through the character Socrates that, um, that when we think that our, our, lover is beautiful, what we're actually mm-hmm. seeing is true beauty, right? The participation mm-hmm. of our, of our partner in true beauty and the best mm-hmm. he calls it erotic guide should point you upward to true beauty that never fades. That seems to be exactly what Be- Beatrice is. Um, right. And so wow. she represents in this way, divine wisdom, right? So she's got right. The physical goods. She's clearly nice to look at, but she also wants mm-hmm. to emphasize that's not what it's about. Um, she mm-hmm. just needs to be wise, 
um, and kind of intense, but I think in a good way, a way that Dante really respects. It seems to me she'd be a great partner. Yeah. Now, here's a question for you, though, Carrie. We're obviously much older and, you know, um, a little bit maybe better read, at least compared to many of our students. But do you think that this would be the choice for our male students? No. Well, and what I was thinking, actually, as I was doing this, um, these are women that should make compelling partners. Uh But to uh, no offense to our listeners who are in the 18 to 22 year old age bracket Mm -hmm. um, and uh, maybe of the the male persuasion, Mm -hmm. um, but generally 20 year old guys don't probably would not make the same choices that a say 40 year old woman mm-hmm. would make a 40 year old woman who's a little bit more well-read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I'm yet, if I were a matchmaker, I would right. say you should be with this kind of lady. Yeah. And more power to you. If you are happen, if you do happen to be in that age bracket and you're like, actually uh, Pefley here is making a compelling argument for Beatrice. And that's exactly who I'm going to look for. So mm-hmm. more power to you if uh, we're yeah. persuasive. Yes. Nice. And then, you know, I, we sort of decided to lump in the first semester, which is ancient medieval mm-hmm. and then humanities too, which is Renaissance reformation. There really aren't a whole lot of women really just Shakespeare and the Shakespeare women that we get are just props. Yeah. Um, and they're pretty and they seem to be very passive. And so, again, maybe that's the sort of thing that a lot maybe on The Actual Bachelor. I've never actually watched The Bachelor, um, but it seems to me that, say, a Catherine might be quite popular Oh, on a show like The Bachelor. But I think Beatrice would make a better partner. Now, see, that's a very that was a very interesting statement because I have watched episodes of The Bachelor. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But I have watched it and, it was, you know, it's a guilty pleasure. I'm going to be honest. I'll put yeah. that on the table. But I think, too, my take on Catherine from Henry V, anyway, is that you're absolutely right in that she would be a good candidate for the actual Bachelor show because she is strategic. Mm-hmm. So she is able to recognize, like, how to take a situation which is maybe not one that favors her. And to at least turn it slightly to her advantage. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that the bachelor is really more about strategery, Ah, you know? So I think Catherine would actually be a really good candidate for the contemporary um, bachelor show. So, so nice choice there. Thank you. Yes. Uh huh. Nice comment. I just didn't even think about that, which is why I so enjoy talking to you. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's great because I sort of thought of Catherine and my own perceptions of a show that I have never seen yeah, uh, and sort of assumed that that seems like that she would seem like that mm-hmm. ideal candidate for something like that. But again, yeah. I think if we're doing matchmaker, wise matchmaker bachelor, Beatrice is the one who should win. Wise matchmaker bachelor. I like it. It would, well, it would be a, a real hot show. It would be, it would be a very low rated show actually, but that's okay. Instead you get the podcast. Um, So I decided to take semester three because of its emphasis on American history in our course. And I went with, I'm channeling Barrett Fisher a little bit in um, being willing to, to make a controversial pick. And I, I realized that as I was thinking about the 
qualities and merits of this choice, I myself am being very influenced by the chaos of the present day circumstances. And so I need somebody who is a solid under pressure kind of choice. Mm -hmm. So it'll probably not surprise Carrie at all to hear me say, Mary Rowlandson, mm-hmm. who's got some um, characteristics that obviously we can judge her harshly from a 21st perspective for, although again, given the larger context, um, it's, it's very complicated in terms of her view of Native Americans. She's definitely coming from a particular culture and time. There's actually a war going on. She's taken captive by Native Americans and so on and so forth, but she does make a number of comments through her captivity tale that, of course, by 21st uh, century standards, um, are it's very difficult to hear. Mm-hmm. However, if we can put that aside, which is you can't ever really fully compartmentalize any person, um, what I really appreciate about her is that even though her story is meant to be very much in the teach her her readers a lesson kind of story and the title even the full title which i always am like really is this the full title i had to look it up it's actually the full title of her captivity tale is the sovereignty and goodness of god comma together with the faithfulness of his promise displayed comma being a uh, narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mary Rowlandson. So, I mean, for her, it's all about teaching her, her readers a lesson about how, how God's presence is, is there, is, is manifest even in, in dark times. But as much as it's a story about God's providence and God's care for us, even in dark times, what I also love about the story is that she cannot help talking about her own resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what really attracts me to her right now as a potential partner is that, boy, the chips are flying, there is chaos, and somehow she manages to soldier on. Right. She you know, has to bear the um, last days of her wounded child. She has to witness her child being buried with no sort of marker. She has to figure out how to exist in a completely, for her, foreign culture Mm -hmm. with food that she finds completely unpalatable, but she knows in order to survive, she needs to figure out how to eat horse hoofs. Mm -hmm. She needs to figure out how to make herself valuable to the people that have taken her captive. And she goes back to her training as a Puritan woman, which is, I know how to make stuff. I know how to knit and sew and do that kind of stuff. And I will use those skills in order to survive. And that, you know, as much as God is with me and I'm constantly turning to the Bible for solace, as much as I'm turning to my faith in God for solace, I'm also taking practical, pragmatic steps to ensure that I'm going to make it through as well. Yes. Yes. So you kept saying survival over and over again, which I think is really 
it makes sense at this moment in time, things are very rough. Yeah. Um, the world is, is kind of a, an ugly place at the moment, or we're seeing the world has always been an ugly place. We're seeing yes. um, the fallenness of humanity. And it strikes me though, that yes, Mary Rowlandson is a woman you would want in your um, post-apocalyptic survivalist group, right? She is, yeah. is going to do what she needs to do. Um, so can I ask you a question about Mary and, and sort of what you think about her, her own explanations? She's always struck yeah. me as a woman who, as you say, she really is making practical um, decisions. She's being very pragmatic. Yeah. The title with multiple yes. commas, um, you know, is, you know, sovereignty of God though. How much do you think that Mary is using that sovereignty of God as an explanation to kind of process what's happening um, yeah. versus it inspiring her to be pragmatic. Well, I think it is a, you know, you're, she's trained, right? She's trained in this theology. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is um, the kind of hope where you, you hope in this belief and the hope is sort of something where you, it, it maybe both fuels the survival, but it also does provide an explanation. And because of course she writes this many years after the experience. And I think what I also appreciate about her story is that as much as it's, you know, meant to be a very convicting story about God's providence, you can see all of these places of um, not doubt necessarily, but definitely uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I think too, she's, you know, like, I don't understand this exactly. Like I, as much as like God is in control, I don't understand exactly how these native Americans, for example, also are able to survive that they're also able to, in fact, evade the right. in her mind, much more superior English army. And, mm -hmm. and of course she offers this I think fairly pathetic explanation, which was, oh, you know, we had not yet learned our lesson, but right. she comes back to that at the end, mm -hmm. which to me indicates her sort of little bit of disquiet about how, even though this might serve as an explanation, it's not always altogether satisfactory mm -hmm. because she even says again at the end, I mean, these are chilling things where she says, you know, I, I don't still sleep that well at night. And you're like, well, my goodness, Mary, right? And because if you do have this, I mean, theoretically, for this profound, you know, belief in God's sovereignty, that God's in control, that should give you profound sense of rest. Right. And yet she doesn't have it. No. And I think that's actually something that the non-Calvinists of the world should probably pay closer attention to because we have struggled us that have, um, you know, we that have grown up in the Calvinist tradition, Jonathan Edwards too talks about this in his personal narrative and even Calvin himself, when he's talking, articulating the theology is like, Hmm, this is, this is tough stuff, people. I'm not sure. So. Right. Right. And you're going to, if you're focusing so hard on this kind of, let's say a simplistic. Right. Providence narrative you're going to see all sorts of conflicting, contradictory oh. data points coming in that are going to make you maybe a little bit less peaceful, a little bit yeah. less secure. Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. She reminds me, though, a little bit, too, of the people that Thucydides describes during the plague, like those good people 
who were like, you know, there most people were just like, whatever, we're just going to act crazy and, you know, do whatever we need to do. And yet there are those people, there are just a few people apparently who are going through the town and ministering to the sick people. And I, I feel like I think Mary Wollinson could possibly be one of those people. Yeah. I'd like to think she would be one of those people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then we both decided to kind of um, pick somebody from semester four, since we were kind of shorted with um, interim. Mm-hmm. So since I just talked about my pick from semester three, Carrie, why don't you tell the good folks listening who your pick was from semester four? Yeah. So I went with Virginia Wolf, or really, since we have students read Virginia Wolf, a room of one's own, my my characters or my my choice is kind of a combination of her and Shakespeare's sister. Right. And so, I mean, I think Virginia Woolf is brilliant. She is an author. She is an activist. Right. The, the, the person of Virginia Woolf is just a fascinating, hmm. complex, wonderful, thoughtful um, person and clearly independent. Right. The whole point of um, A Room of One's Own is that a woman needs space to be creative um, mm-hmm. and have this space to, to flourish. So this lady is not clingy, not clingy nope. at all. And I feel like that's probably <laughs> a really good thing in a friendship or a partnership. Yeah. Um, and this is unusual at a time when most women did just want to be wives. She yeah. wants something different, something mm-hmm. more profound, an actual partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think as I think about Wolf and what she's advocating for women, it seems like she's advocating what Aristotle was talking about mm-hmm in the Nicomachean ethics. But of course, he's thinking only that men are capable of this mm-hmm. eudaimonia, of this complete human flourishing. Mm. But for Aristotle, that is all about friendships, relationships, mm. and the contemplative life, right? These intellectual virtues. Mm-hmm. And it seems like what Wolf is doing, and this makes sense because she was trained in classics and history, right? She knows her stuff, um, even though she was kept out of traditional education because of her gender, um, that she could sort of see what Aristotle was talking about is great. I want to flourish. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that are important to me. She also seemed to have a great sense of humor, like cross-dressing as a man to uh, (laughs) to sort of make people look foolish. Um, So I feel like she's a perfect candidate for the humanities program, um, right? The, for the bachelor, um, oh yeah, as she is just such a a lover of classic literature. And then you know our comment about Catherine, right, mm-hmm. connects nicely back to our comment about Catherine, right? That Catherine at that point had to be strategic, right? She's this character yeah. of Shakespeare, and Wolf imagines this sister of Shakespeare. What would it have been like to be a woman in the time of Shakespeare writing? And it would not have been pretty because this creativity would have driven her to madness because it wouldn't have been accepted. And I think that's a little bit, uh, you know, sort of revealing Wolf's own struggles with being a little bit too progressive for her, for her time. So she'd be a, she'd be a complicated woman, um, but a wonderful one to get to know. Yeah. And I think too, there was a piece in the Atlantic monthly um, many years ago now um, talking about her contributions, even in terms of the huge numbers of book reviews she wrote. And so in terms of this podcast, she would be the epitome of bookish. Right. She would be in fact, a great guest oh for, God. for bookish at Bethel. 
we have to come up with some of our favorite ideas for guests that we would just want to talk about books with. Oh, yeah. She would, of course, I, she would, I mean, the, the podcast would be three hours long because yes, so, I don't think she could stop. Mm-hmm. And I would feel again, very, um, shall we say inadequate in terms oh, of my own. You. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Virginia Woolf. What, what a great read. Um, mm-hmm. What a great choice. Um, I went with, again, a slightly more traditional choice from my um, semester four. Again, I clearly am very impacted by (laughs) the crisis um, of the current days, whether it's um, the trial, whether it's the recent shooting, um, and uh, also, of course, the ongoing COVID. Um, But I went with good old reliable Mina Harker from Dracula. And uh, I will just say, too, in choosing her, I'm thinking about how our female students for their podcast, I, didn't they review Jonathan Harker as a potential candidate? That is my recollection. And I would say this to those students in person, as well as by way of the podcast. I've got to say I was a little disappointed. Carrie is also gesturing I'm, to me with her face. Yeah, because I'm nodding and... and- widening my eyes. Yeah. He would not have been my choice at all, but um, that's another issue. And it could be too possibly because in the um, movie version, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes. Carrie's also just chuckling. I wish you could see some of the facial expressions I can see folks. (laughs) Um, Keanu Reeves played Jonathan Harker very well, actually, I think. Mm -hmm. And just really played up his just sort of tone deafness and um, his inability to be in any way savvy about anything. Mm-hmm. So um, he's actually a great foil to Mina Harker, who is everything in my mind that Jonathan is not. Absolutely. So while Mina, again, isn't trained as a lawyer, she does actually have some, again, practical education. She's clearly done the sort of stenographer course or what have you so that she also can be not necessarily an equal partner to Jonathan, um, her husband, her eventual husband, but she's clearly um, a match um, even in terms of the, the practical skills she, she brings to the situation. And when things go south for Jonathan and her friend Lucy, Um, Mina, again, is someone who is able to like, okay, here's the way that we deal with this. I'm going to just go to work. Mm -hmm. And so she's the one who organizes the newspaper clippings. She's the one who listens to the records. She's the one who transcribes everything by way of the typewriter, this new exciting piece of technology. And she's really the one Mm -hmm. in some ways who then tells the story. Yes. And it's only when the men go traditional on the bit and think they need to protect her that she then, of course, gets um, exposed to Dracula and things again go south then for her as well. But I think there's some interesting lessons in that book about um, maybe how to rethink gender roles um, and so on and so forth. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that part, my students have even said at that part, they're so frustrated when the men suddenly say, oh, Mina, now we need to protect you. And all the, you know, your audience is all saying, no, clearly something bad's going to happen because you're not taking her seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and she's really, really important to solving this, this situation. Mm -hmm. I like that you went with two just really strong survivalist women, people yep. you would want in a tough situation. I did. I did. And I, I like that you went with sort of the strategic mm -hmm. as well as the ideal. Yeah. Is there an ideal for, I mean, Shakespeare's sister from the Virginia Wolf is probably the, the ideal. Mm -hmm. So actually you did that with your choice for um, humanities four too. Right. Okay. Some interest. What does that reveal about us? I Carrie? Know. I feel like we should have had maybe a psychologist on the show today to tell us about ourselves. I think that would frighten me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But clearly we have our types. Although I want the audience to know, I also, it, for me, it was a dead tie between Wolf and Mina because I too think Mina would just be fantastic. And for our listeners, it will not surprise you to learn that Virginia Woolf and Shakespeare's sister was my alternate for our humanities work. If you were, so since we were both dissatisfied with the Jonathan Harker, and I know we did not prepare for this at all, mm -hmm. but off the top of your head, humanities four, what dude would you go for? If you were going to, if you were, if you were going to do, I guess, revert to, is it the bachelorette? I don't know. Anyway, right. you know what I mean though. The, the bachelorette is the one where the, the guy. The is, guy is the, the option. Right, right. Okay. Um, yeah, certainly not Jonathan Harker. Like in no, oh, way, no. in no way, shape, or form. I mean, Van Helsing is pretty cool. If we're if we're thinking about Dracula, he's kind of an interesting, an interesting guy. But I don't know that any of the any of the men in Dracula would would be a person I would go for. That's a hard no for me. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. Um, I might go, and then I'm thinking, what other novels did we read? I mean, The Stranger, I'm not going to go for Merceau. No. no, and we, so like then, so then in terms of nonfiction, like who would be my my hero from Humanities 4 is like Thurman, Bonhoeffer. I mean, there's a lot of good yeah. dudes. Yeah, yeah. I would say Thurman or Moltmann in terms of oh. ideas. Yeah. And I know Moltmann's partner is also a theologian. So clearly he thought it was important to be with a woman who was, um, was interested in academic theology as well. So that's kind of cool. Well, we did also read, did we read? No, Voltaire was semester three, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause I was like, well, yeah. Would you prefer Candide or Pangloss? I don't know. I I, I, you know, there, I mean, you know, we just finished persuasion in the, on the other team. And so, you know, the, the Jane Austen heroes are quite good. And I actually like um, Captain Wentworth from persuasion. I was just commenting. I just saw Jen McNabb, um, our guest from last week. And I was saying what I really appreciate about Captain Wentworth in persuasion versus some of the earlier heroes from like pride and prejudice, sense and sensibility is that, in this later treatment of a hero, Captain Wentworth has the opportunity to be a little bit more human in that he has also made some mistakes yes. and he is able to articulate that and to admit that. 
And so I, I kind of appreciate that complexity, even though he also seems like a lovely, lovely dude. Yes, I agree. And I think I've said this maybe on the podcast before, maybe when Samuel was, was with us, um, that Persuasion is my favorite of all mm-hmm. of the Jane Austen novels. Um, but I don't think it works well to teach yes. um, as, as her other novels. And it's just striking me that the same shade I threw on 18 to 22 year old guys, uh-huh. I'm now going to throw onto 18 to 20 year old um, females mm-hmm. that I think they haven't had enough life experience to know what really makes a good partner. And yes. so the story that's told in Persuasion is just, it's outside of their life experience. And so they're not necessarily going to see that Captain Wentworth is a really great, great character. Yeah, true that. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that we've done our students proud by doing our own homage to their, you know, pod or their award-winning podcast. I don't know. It's sort of award-winning because we, yeah. we, th- we thought it merited um, being, you know, played. So absolutely. So now we should pivot um, to what's on your nightstand, Carrie Puffley. So right now what's on my nightstand is Ulysses. It's worked its way back onto my nightstand because we're going to be doing a podcast. on yes. it. So I had to get back to it. Yes. I, I should have that on my nightstand, but I've already confessed to Sam yesterday that it, it is not yet made it onto my nightstand. So that could be an interesting podcast. I'm just going to throw that out there, but you know, it's fine. Um, I have a book on my nightstand that I have not yet started, but I have heard plenty of about plenty about it um, because I was at uh, online. Oh, and this is the worst kind of a thing, right? It's like some sort of online breakfast dealio in which this woman spoke mm-hmm. with the president of West. What's the co- Westmont? Oh, um, yep, uh, another Christian college on the West Coast. Um, talking about her book and some of the characters in her book. Um, And this was uh, Nancy Kane. And she talked about her book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. And she talked about some of the characters um, that she writes. She's a historian, but she actually does leadership studies at one of these Ivy Leagues. And I love that a historian is actually doing leadership stuff because of course, in studying someone like Rachel Carson, mm-hmm. she's got things to say, um, having studied a leader like Rachel Carson about leadership today. And so that Rachel Carson shows up in the book, um, Frederick Douglass shows up in the book. So I'm excited to actually delve into the book itself, having heard about it from the author and the president of Westmont. That sounds like a good nightstand book. Or it's not frivolous enough. And uh, I'll have to, you know, revert to some sort of detective story, but yeah, there it yeah. is. Yes. And I think I, I still have a Terry Pratchett book ready if I need a little break from the more stream of consciousness, consciousness modernist literature that is Ulysses as well. Excellent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, reader, or well, readers, we're, we're not reading this podcast, but well, listeners, um, thanks for listening. And you have been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.